Hello, hello, and welcome to Bad Apple. I'm Helen. And I'm Riley. And, well, we thought we'd do a serial killer case. And, goddamn, did we do a serial killer case. If you look around the internet, there may be many two-hour-long episodes or movies or documentaries covering this case. So, we're going to try to do almost an abridged version of this story. Just for those of you who want to know about this case, but want it in under maybe an hour? Not sure yet. We'll see how long it goes for. Because, you know, of course, we're all so busy running around during this time. And, I mean, maybe it'll have changed by the time you're hearing this, but we can only exercise for an hour. That's true. So. We've got you covered. Yeah. The serial killer case we're covering today is famously named the Snowtown Murders or the Bodies in the Barrels. If you're from Australia, you've probably heard of it. And if you're from New Zealand, well, you probably haven't. I hadn't. To give you an idea, I had to pull out the Monopoly board to keep track of everything that happened in this case. I mean, like, those little Monopoly pieces uh, and the red and green houses. It was a lot. It was fun, though. And that's because this case is kind of unbelievable. I can, I can barely get my head around it, and I just finished writing the script for it. <laughs> yeah, all these like relationships and people like uh the way people inter- interlink with each other reminds me so much of Wuthering Heights. <laughs> yeah. If you've read Wuthering Heights, like everyone kinda has like the same name and everyone's like marrying their cousins and their nieces and their like and their neighbors like kid and mm. like it's just like none of them could leave Adelaide, so they just had to like start all like hooking up and living together. Yeah. A bit like now, I guess. None of us can leave our, <laughs> our little radius, so we've <laughs> you've just got to find someone else. Join their bubble. Yeah. Strange times. It's all way too close for comfort. That's all I have to say about that. So Adelaide, as you may know, is the capital city of South Australia and the fifth largest city in Australia. It's a bit notorious for having, like, weird crimes, and this one definitely doesn't help, uh, and also for weird people doing the crimes. Sorry if you're from Adelaide. I don't make the rules. Have we had a case from Adelaide? Facts are facts. Not yet. Ah. But this is the weirdest one I've ever done. <laughs> yeah. And it's from Adelaide, yes. so... Snowtown is located less than an hour north of Adelaide, a small farming community with a population of around 500 people. 500? That's like... That's like one seating area in a sporting stadium, right? I sp- yeah. sport. <laughs> Sport. No one does sport. Yeah, it's like one wing, one section or whatever. It's very small. 500 people. Mm -hmm. Snowtown is situated on South Australia's wheat belt, so most of the economy is based on cereal crops. In the 90s, Snowtown's one and only bank closed and was eventually rented out as a storage space for $60 a month in January of 1999. Although this case is often called the Snowtown Murders, only one of the many killings actually happened in Snowtown, and none of the victims or perpetrators were even from there. So, rip Snowtown. Bad luck. (laughs) They got lumped with this murder. It did kind of help boost their economy a little bit, uh, because obviously the bank was sold, the town was kind of dying, and then these murders happened, and now, like, most of their economy is, like, solely based on the fact that people come to visit to, like, see the bank vault. Mm. Anyway, there's that. That's a good thing for them. They've thought about changing their name as well right. to Rosetown. <laughs> but it hasn't happened yet. Right. 
great. Rose Town. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, many of the murders actually were committed in the outer northern suburbs of Adelaide. Adelaide, Riz, you know much about uh, Adelaide vibes? What's it like there? You know, I've never been to Adelaide. Mm-hmm. I've heard that it has, like, big, small town vibes. Oh. Like, it's, it feels like a small town. But it's pretty big. But it is, in population, quite big. Okay. Yeah. There's a lot of churches there. Sometimes yeah. it's called the City of Churches. Sometimes it's called Radelaide. Radelaide, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've never been. And... Nothing is enticing me about it. I'm sorry. (laughs) If you're from Adelaide or you've been there and you have really good stories, let me know and maybe I'll think about it. She hasn't been and she has no plans to go. Yeah. That's (laughs) like change her mind, apparently. Yeah, well, I don't want to get stuffed in a barrel. (laughs) So, these Snowtown murders were perpetrated by a group of four men. John Bunting is often described as the ringleader of this group. He was described as a people's person. So, in some ways, people said he was a good listener, kind, compassionate, and empowering. I just imagine in, like, interactions and conversations, that kind of, you know, level. As a child, he was beaten and sexually assaulted by a friend's older brother. He developed a fascination for weaponry and pain, as well as a strong hatred for gay people and pedophiles. He also became fascinated with anatomy, both animal and human. He killed his housemate Kevin's dog and killed and skinned feral cats. He also had a job at a crematorium and later at a slaughterhouse. He was said to brag about slaughtering the animals, which he enjoyed the most. So this guy is kind of a serial killer profile to an absolute T. People that work in slaughterhouses are not getting a good rep on this podcast. Yeah. Or is it correlation or causation? Mm. That's all I have to say. (laughs) In January 1989, he meets and marries Veronica Tripp, She has a teenage son from a previous relationship, but only she moves in with Bunting. She foffs the son. She's like, go figure it out. In 1991, they found their own home in Salisbury North on a street called Waterloo Corner Road. What is interesting, perhaps, is his relationship with his co-offender, James Vlasikis. Bunting moved to an area called Murray Bridge in 1991. He is still married to Veronica at this point, but he begins a sexual relationship with single mother Elizabeth Harvey. She had teenage children as well. One was called James Vlasikis. Bunting meets Vlasikis in April of 1994. At this point, Bunting is 28 and James is 15. As we said, Bunting is this people kind of guy. He's already been with two women at this point, so there's no doubt he probably formed a close bond with Vlasikis. He seems like the kind of guy that can just get away with anything. Mm, You know what I mean? Yeah. Babe, it didn't... What do you mean? It didn't mean anything. He's Mm. one of those guys. Vlasikis came to regard Bunting as his father. At the trial, he even told the South Australian Supreme Court, quote, he was like the father figure I never had. What Vlasikis didn't know when he met Bunting in 1994 was that Bunting already had a murder to his name. In 1992, Bunting had befriended a man called Clinton Treesize, A friend says that during visits to her house, he had spoken to another man, Mark Hayden, about killing and torture and how he could make people disappear. The friend says that they said Treesize was gay, but they were not sure whether he was, quote, into the kids as well. Bunting had said that Treesize, quote, didn't deserve to live. He invited Treesize over to his place to hang out, where in the living room, he confronted him with accusations of being a pedophile. 
He bashed his head in with a shovel and then disposed of his body in a shallow grave in an area called Lower Light. As far as we know, there was no evidence that he was actually a pedophile. It's during this time, when Bunting is living in Salisbury North, that he meets and befriends Mark Hayden, as mentioned before. Hayden was a few years older than Bunting and known for being pretty quiet. And, well, they both liked cars, so, (laughs) like all male friendships, they were immediately best friends. Motor vehicles. Yeah. Cars. Engines. (laughs) Rub, rub. Don't worry about whether they're a good person or not. Anyway. (laughs) Bunting also befriends Robert Wagner and his boyfriend, Barry Lane. Everyone lived very close to each other. That's how they met. Treesize was actually also low-key involved with Barry Lane for a little bit. You must be wondering, and what doesn't really add up is, Wagner has a boyfriend, and we know that Bunting is definitely not a stan of that. So what was up? Well, Wagner was a troubled child. He was sexually abused at the age of eight and didn't do well in school. He meets Barry Lane at a party, but he meets him as Vanessa. It's kind of hazy what exactly Lane was up to at that point. The sources range between Lane transitioning or just exploring their gender identity. They start engaging in a sexual relationship when Wagner is just 14. At this point, Lane is 30, so uh, Mm. that's not quite it. Yeah. Evidence suggests that Lane was originally dominant, but in the latter times, Wagner became more assertive. They run off together and stay together, actually, for like 11 years, all the way up to meeting Bunting. So, with that bit of squad background, and Bunting now having met Vlasikis, let's go to victim two. The next murder occurs the year after they meet, in 1995. Susan Allen lived a block away from Bunting in Salisbury North, and had previously been in a relationship with a man named Ray Davies. There was like a 17-year age gap or something between Susan and Ray. Like, she was like 44, and he was Mm. like 27 or something. And Ray was also involved with Lane. Yeah. (laughs) What a mess. And he was known to have some issues. Like, he would expose himself to schoolboys, and just, he was disturbed. Mm. After the breakup, Ray lived in a caravan in Susan's backyard, which is kind of weird, if I'm going to say. (laughs) Kick him out, Susan. But this only lasts until one day, Susan's seven-year-old grandson told her that Ray had sexually assaulted him and tried to sexually assault another one of her grandsons. This boy was seven and told her, I've now just realized. Yeah. That's like a seven-year-old boy. It's pretty young to be so, like... To know that, like, that Forward was not it. Yeah. yeah. Go, go, good on him. Yeah. He'd been taught something good. Mm. I guess this strange man's living in your backyard in a caravan, so you would already be like, mm. oh. We advise. Yeah. <laughs> Susan reported the matter to the police. So they go to the station to report this because I guess that's what you do. Yeah. <laughs> did in the 90s. On their return to the home, Ray was gone. The boy's mother, so Susan's daughter, never saw Ray again, but saw Bunting, Wagner, and Susan cleaning out the caravan. They gave the mother a picture of her two sons that had been in the caravan and told her that Ray was a pedophile, which is why he had the photo. Vlasikis says while Susan and her daughter were out, Bunting told him that him and Wagner took Ray to Bunting's old property, where they tortured him and then, while he was still alive, took him to Waterloo Corner Road, where Wagner strangled Ray using jumper leads. He says his mother, Elizabeth Harvey, was involved in the torture as well. 
stabbing Ray up and down his legs with a ceramic cleaning tool. They buried him in the backyard. Why, what was Elizabeth doing here? She just yeah. rocks up and she's like, let me in on it too. Yeah. What a let me add holy in. crap. <laughs> After this murder, Bunting committed welfare fraud, giving Centrelink the impression that Ray was still alive, changing his address a couple times and impersonating him on various occasions. From this fraud, he got around $32,000. Holy crap. Yeah. After murdering Ray, Bunting also began a relationship with Susan Allen. It only... So he's got three chicks on the go now. Oh my god. Okay. It only lasted around six months when Bunting ended it. But it appears that Susan was unwilling to accept that their relationship was finished. Bunting had to tell Susan's daughter that he was sick of receiving notes from Susan and to tell her to stop sending the notes and stop driving past his house. Susan Allen's body was found in the same hole as Ray, but it was distributed between 11 different plastic bags. He also defrauded Centrelink for her payments, stole her car and stole off some of her other property. Police spoke to Bunting in 1997 as a result of a missing persons report filed for Susan. He said that Susan had stayed with him, but she'd moved to Tasmania or Mildura. She didn't want her brother to know her whereabouts. He also told these false stories to Susan's friends. You might be thinking that it was obviously Bunting that killed Susan, but he was never actually found guilty of her murder. There wasn't enough evidence, and it ended up being a hung jury as to whether or not it was Bunting. Although he was quick on the Centrelink fraud and false stories afterwards. He was quick on the draw there. And the body was found in the same hole that he put Ray in. <laughs> Why was the jury so hung? There must have been some... Mm, yeah. I mean, with this one, I you know, for a second you think, you know, Ray's the end of the road for Ray. But it's not only Ray. It's also Susan. Mm. Damn. Victim four. Enter. Michael Gardner. Gardner lived in the residence of Mrs. Nicole Zarita. Veronica Mills' cousin and Veronica lived with Wagner. So there are two Veronicas up to this point. Mm. And I really struggle with the name Veronica. <laughs> Veronica Tripp. And Veronica Mill. Right. Mills. I think it's Mills. Mills. Sorry. Yeah. Gardner was openly homosexual. According to Mills, Wagner didn't like Gardner because he was gay and intimidated him. <laughs> okay. Okay, little mousy boy. Hey, Wagner. <laughs> what the heck is up with Wagner? He gives me... I don't know how tall he was, but he gives yeah. me short energy. He's like five foot four. <laughs> he describes an occasion when Gardner placed his hand over a child's mouth to stop the child from talking. Wagner is triggered by this because at the age of eight, something similar happened to him. After this incident, he wouldn't let Gardner near their child or the other children of Mills unless either of them were present. Mills said he was always too upset to tell her the full story and reason. Look, I'm willing to cut Wagner some slack here because I understand that, like, hurt people hurt people and victims of childhood sexual assault have to carry that baggage around and that is hard. Okay, mm. I'm willing to cut him a little bit of slack. But you can't ignore the fact that the majority of people who go through a similar experience end up not being, not doing this shit. Mm. Yeah. But just, I mean, keep it in mind that he is obviously damaged. Yeah. And he did have Bunting to very conveniently just get in on any plot. Yeah. With, you know? So, September 16th, 1997, a friend discovered that the premise had been ransacked and Gardner was missing. No signs of forced entry. 
Nicole Zarita, who was out of town working in Mildura, reported this to the police. At this time, Gardner was expected to move to a friend's place in Gulwa. Yeah, I don't know how to pronounce Gulwa. Gulwa. Her name was Miss Katerina van Gelder, and she received a phone call from him, which sounded tense and upset, and he called her Aunt Kathy, which she had asked him not to do. She could also hear people in the background telling him to hurry up and get off the phone. She says the call wasn't local. She heard, quote, the pips of an STD call. And we had to look that up because you yeah. know it's been a thousand years since I've picked up a landline phone. I think it just means a call that is like far away or interstate. And maybe probably stands for standard. STD. I don't know if it's standard or like something, something time distance. Right. Super time distance. <laughs> I don't know. Away. <laughs> anyway. Gardner told her he was okay and that he still wanted to move in and it wouldn't take much longer. She gave him the address, but he hung up. However, despite the incident with the children, Veronica Mills was still close to Gardner. She received a message on her answering machine after his disappearance, but the voice sounded too husky to be Gardner's. The voice said he had stolen property belonging to Nicole Zarita and was going to use the money to get surgery. They implied it was, like, gender confirmation surgery, but this is also the first time we've heard of this from Gardner. Like, as we said, he was openly homosexual, but there was no no other, um... They didn't say anything else about him. Yeah, about his gender identity. We yeah. don't know anything about that, so... So, mm, they probably just... They could have made that up, whoever's, whoever's making this call. Yeah. And Mills plays this tape to Nicole Zarita. Nicole gets a call from a male person saying that Gardner wanted his wallet because he needed his ID. She's like, well, tell him to come and get it. See ya. This person calls back again, same message. Nicole is like, well, then give me back all the shit that you stole. But this dude is like, well, Gardner doesn't want to see you. Come meet me at the park and give me the wallet. Again, she says no. She keeps getting these, like, gaslight phone calls from someone, like, pretending to be Gardner. Vlasicus alleges that these calls were made by Hayden's nephew at the request of Bunting. After Gardner's disappearance, Wagner told Nicole that he and Bunting had seen Gardner at a service station in Prospect. When Nicole is like, well, why didn't you stop him? Bunting said that he didn't want to be charged for assault. <laughs> but he's out here just killing people. <laughs> I was like, not, not assault. Um, I would never assault someone. <laughs> Vlasicus was told by Bunting that Gardner had been taken from Nicole's place to the shed at Burdekin Avenue. Bunting said he had strangled Gardner with a rope. There's a lot more conversations about Gardner between Bunting, Wagner and Vlasicus, but Bunting was mostly leading this conversation. Hayden appears to be MIA from this murder, apart from his nephew making those fake calls. Mm. Vlasicus is able to eventually get the wallet from Nicole upon Bunting's request. So... Vlasicus hasn't actually, like, helped or carried out any of these murders. Like, he normally wasn't even aware of the, like, plan. Mm. He's just kind of been finding out after the fact and, like, being made to help out, like, with the post-murder logistics. Yeah, and in 1997, he would have been... 18? Yeah, 18 years old. And, look, that is an adult. I'm not going to deny that. But he's been, like involved with bunting since he was 15 and like i could just imagine like the influence around him and Mm -hmm. why he might feel like he couldn't just speak up about this yeah if that's all you ever know around you is this 
chaos. Yeah. Maniacs. Everyone you know is in on it. Yeah. Now, we still remember Barry Lane, right? Wagner's partner. Well, Bunting had been using Lane to get info on local pedophiles. Bunting created some kind of chart in his room, which has been referred to as a rock spider wall. The chart was made from various pieces of paper, connected by pieces of wool. Real old school. The wool wall. Yeah. You know that meme of the, the red guy string? in the wall? <laughs> That's Bunting. Yeah. <laughs> Bunting wrote names of people he considered dirty because they were gay or pedophiles and referred to them as rock spiders, which I guess is Australian slang, Riz. Yeah, rock spider is like a weird Australian slang for like pedophiles. Mm. And... I didn't know like what it uh what the reference was. I googled it right before this. I don't want to repeat it. Nah. I don't want to say it. So if you want to know, go look it up yourself. If you don't want to know, don't. You're not losing much by not knowing. No. Nah. He built and revisited this wall whenever he got new info. So after Lane and Wagner, they kind of ran into some troubles. They kind of broke up. Mm. Lane went to live with a man named Thomas Trevelyan in 1997. Evidence suggests that Trevelyan was prone to unusual behaviour and had some psychiatric difficulties. He would always go for long walks without warning. How long were they to be considered, like, weird? Days? No, I just think, like, long walk, like, hours. Okay. And, uh, I don't know why that stood out to me. I just found it a bit funny, but relatable these days. (laughs) It is a little bit. What else is he meant to do? Yeah. Lane had told Veronica Tripp, throwback to her, Bunting's first girlfriend. She's still on the scene, seemingly. Yeah. That he had helped dispose of a body. He told her that Bunting had killed someone. So, he had knowledge of the murder of Tresize and posed a risk to those involved in the murder. Bunting spoke of Lane as having a big mouth. In mid-October, Lane's mother gets a call and Lane tells her that he is travelling to Queensland to see his sister, Crystal. He called her a lot of bad names and told her he didn't want anything to do with her or the family. Trevelyan was in the background spurring Lane on. His mom calls his sister to tell him he's on his way. But a few minutes later, Crystal gets a call from who she thinks is Lane too, but thinks it's odd because he doesn't introduce himself the way he usually does. And that's by saying, it's Barry. <laughs> I have one of my aunts, whenever she calls she just says, hey, it's me, <laughs> and just expects you to know. But I do know because she's the only person that does that. Hey, it's me. Hey, it's me. And then you're like, who's me? <laughs> Lane was scared of Trevelyan. On the 12th of October, a friend, Bruce Barmer, went to his place one night, and when Trevelyan went for a walk, Lane was obviously distressed and expressed fears for his life. He asks Barmer to stay the night, but Barmer doesn't. Ooh. Mm. And then, around two weeks later, on the 27th of October, 1997, an ex-fiancé reports Lane missing. Police call and speak with a person who identifies himself as Wagner. He tells them that he had seen Lane a couple weeks ago at the shops, but that Lane was with a teenage boy and didn't see Wagner. Wagner continues to give false stories. Vlasikas says Bunting and Wagner bragged about Lane's murder and torture and said Trevelyan was involved and that the financial benefit in connection with Lane was the, quote, icing on the cake. Hayden is once again MIA. But he was present for convos about Lane's murder. 
After the murder, Bunting takes Lane's motor vehicle and swaps it for an orange Sigma with his friends, Mr. and Mrs. Freeman. Remember them, they'll come back. Because everyone eventually does in this story. <laughs> no one can leave it alone. One of these people need to move out. Leave Adelaide. Jesus Christ. Yeah, what's keeping you there? <laughs> Lord knows. It's Bunding's amazing personality. They want more. They can't get enough. Oh, God, he's magnetic. <laughs> Lights up a room. What a stud. Believe it or not, we are now at the halfway point of the murder frenzy. Next up on the list is Mr. Thomas Trevelyan himself. Oh, no one is safe. No one is safe. These people are relentless. This one is actually quite sad. Yeah. Trevelyan's body was found on the 5th of November 1997, hanging from a tree in a remote locality in the Kersbrook area. A damaged and empty milk crate was nearby, and no means of transport was present. The cause of death was attributed to the hanging. The pathologist found no evidence to suggest that a second person was involved in the death. At the time, the authorities treated the death as a suicide. Bunting's lawyers argued that it was a suicide, that it wasn't uncommon or out of character for him. Trevelyan had moved in with Mills and Wagner in October that year, just after Lane's death. Mills said that Trevelyan was crazy, which is not a good way of describing someone with mental health issues. These are Veronica's words, not mine. <laughs> that he was supposed to be on medication, but he wasn't taking it. At one point, he threatened to kill one of her children's puppies. That was the day before his body was found. Yeah, as we can... As you might have noticed already in this whole case, these people are from small towns and they just don't use any appropriate language mm. or descriptions. Or descriptions. We don't really know, like... We don't know much about anyone's, like... Anything. Yeah, just that they were, like, quote, fucked up or, quote, crazy or, quote, pedophile, yeah. quote. They just throwing quote, stuff out gay. there. Yeah. We don't know if they were gay. And we, yeah, we don't we didn't even know what Barry Lane was doing. We don't know who's gay. Yeah. We don't know who's, like, experiencing different gender identities. We don't know. Because all the descriptions are so bad. We've come a long way in the last 20 years. We have. Anyway. But just to make clear, it's mostly these. We're quoting them. Yeah. And the time. And these kinds of people, mm. we're doing our best otherwise to yeah. be appropriate. But, yeah. Yeah. On the day his body is found, Trevelyan had all the money withdrawn from his account. We don't know if it was him mm. or someone else. When Wagner and Bunting came to the house after the puppy incident, Mills told them what had happened. According to Mills, that evening, Bunting and Wagner took Trevelyan for a drive. Mills didn't see Trevelyan again. Bunting told Vlasicus later that Trevelyan had started to, quote, fuck up and, quote, go mental. Bunting said Trevelyan had a big mouth and would tell people about Lane's murder. Bunting told Vlasicus that Trevelyan was involved in the murder of Lane. He said that he and Wagner had hung Trevelyan out of a tree. Trevelyan was made to stand on something and it was kicked out from under him. Bunting told Vlasicus that it was easy to make the death look like a suicide by leaving money in Trevelyan's pocket. They didn't try and access Trevelyan's benefits or property. This was seemingly like a different kind of murder. Yeah, and how does leaving money in someone's pocket make it look like a suicide? I don't know. Okay, Bunting. Yeah. Maybe he knows something we don't. Now, Gavin Porter. Porter was friends with Blasicus and they used heroin together and were living with Bunting and Elizabeth Harvey in the Bodican Ave house in April 1998. Bunting and Wagner expressed concerns about Porter's drug use and refer to him as 
waste. <laughs> but what about Vlasicus? Yeah, clearly they were fine with Vlasicus. They were just like, oh no, like, you're fine, man. You're fine. But Porter? No. Fuck him. Unfortunately for Porter, he was very open about the absence of relatives, which made him a prime financial target for bunting, as in there would be no one to report him missing if something happened, and, you know, no one's looking out for the dude. On the night of the murder, Vlasicus went to the Murray Bridge Drive-In Theatre. On his return to the house, Bunting and Wagner told him that Porter had been murdered. Bunting then showed Vlasicus the body of Porter in the shed. Vlasicus saw a huge purple mark around Porter's neck and was told that Wagner had a rope around Porter's neck, but he had lashed out in self-defense and stabbed Bunting in the hand. Bunting said that he then, quote, jumped onto the deceased and pushed all the air out of his chest. Which, what? Anyway. Vlasicus was surprised by Bunting's plan to kill Porter because it hadn't really been spoken about and he actually didn't pick up any vibes that Porter was a target. Vibe check. Can't believe we were vibe checking in the 90s. (laughs) He was doing it. You know what? If he like, if he was actually vibe checking, he would have realized a lot earlier than this that (laughs) the vibes were off. Yeah. Also, imagine just casually coming home after a movie at the drive-in theater and your two friends have murdered your housemate. Yeah, what the heck? After the murder, Bunting told Vlasicus that, quote, it fell into our laps and he would be set for life with income. Within a couple of days, Bunting bought a new barrel and placed the body in there with the help of Vlasicus. Bunting took the lid off the first barrel, which had the bodies of Gardner and Lane, and said that they were rotting very nicely. Mm-hmm. So, there was actually already a barrel there. Bunting took the lid off this first barrel and it had the bodies of Gardner and Lane. So, we knew where they ended up. Mm. And he said they were rotting very nicely. And it might be important to note that... Yeah, he asked... uh, Bunting asked Vlasicus about the smell. He was like, oh, do these smell, bro? These three dead bodies? And Vlasicus was like, yeah, they stink, dude. What the heck? Because Bunting didn't have a sense of smell. He couldn't smell them. Yeah, and he seemed to have he seems to have this weird fixation on the smell because of that. Yeah, he can't he keeps asking people whether or not they smell and it seemed to be a bit of a an Achilles heel for Bunting, the fact that he couldn't smell anything. Because, mm. like that it his whole barrel thing kinda like is very uh unstable. Mm. What do you mean? As in like the plan to put them in the barrels was, like, really, was quite shaky because, like... Oh, maybe he couldn't think it through completely because he couldn't smell. He couldn't smell. He couldn't tell how bad it was he getting. Couldn't, and he couldn't, like, he couldn't realise whether or not, like, neighbours would smell yeah, or, like, right. other people would realise. Who knew? Who knew a sense of smell would be so important yeah. in being a serial killer? Yeah. Well, I mean, if you're going to do it like this... Yeah, tea. He should have thought of something else. <laughs> I, I just want to know, like, when he, like, came across a big barrel and thought, this is it. Yeah. Like, was it just, like, at a hardware store? Or was Instead he, like... of just burying them like he did the first two. Yeah, strange. The first three he buried. Yeah. And then he was like, hang on. Barrels. Barrels. What a brilliant idea. Yeah. Who knows? So they started getting Porter's Centrelink benefits as usual, fraudulently pretending that he wasn't dead. They also used his bank account to get other victims' benefits paid into because they had access to it. Also, Hayden had the card. Hayden had the card. They were like, here you go. Yeah. I know you haven't been here much, bro, but goodwill. We'll give you the card. So let's check back in with Vlasicus. Mm. Lord knows he is in a pickle here. Mm. He's stuck in this circle of maniacs. The ringleader 
is also his like father figure. His friends are just dropping dead left, right, and center. Damn, things are tough for him. Vlasicus also had this half-brother, Troy Yud. And as if things can't get worse for Vlasicus, he says that Yud had raped him on many occasions when he was younger. He told Bunting about this. And we barely have to tell you what happens to Yud, but we'll go through it. Vlasicus really didn't think that Bunting would carry out the murder because Yud was Vlasicus' half-brother and Bunting was also in a relationship with their mother, Elizabeth Harvey. Mm. Although Bunting did have violent thoughts towards Yud and wanted to bash him or flog him. This time, Vlasicus is a key eyewitness to this murder, so we can actually get a clear picture of what happened for once. Yeah, people don't just mysteriously disappear. Yeah, and then he gets told that they're gone somewhere Hmm. anyway according to vlasicus the pre-murder events occurred without warning bunting wagner and hayden came to their house hayden's finally here yeah he's turned up after they gave him the card yeah (laughs) he checked the group chat and he was like oh i'm gonna be here for this one (laughs) they gave him the card and he was like damn probably should probably should help them out a little they're gonna get do this favor for me that's true they come to the house and they have jack handles which is like what you put in the um it's basically like a long iron rod thing with a hook in the end. Yeah. They woke up Vlasicus and gave him a club and a pair of handcuffs. But imagine being woke up like that. <laughs> I hope I never am. <laughs> Me too. They then went to Yud's bedroom and started, quote, swinging into Troy. Probably like hitting him. They were swinging into him. Mm. Yud wakes up and jumps up on his bed. Bunting tells Vlasicus to handcuff Yud and they leave the bedroom. Bunting and Wagner put Yud in the bathtub, where Bunting further physically and verbally abuses him. Vlasicus leaves to join Hayden in the lounge. He couldn't handle it, and didn't think Hayden could either. They could hear the physical assault continue from where they sat in the lounge. Bunting and Wagner made Yud record abusive statements directed to his mother and others. They made him refer to them with deferential titles, such as Sir. They also attained a PIN number, presumably for like a credit card. Bunting also encourages Vlasicus to take this opportunity to make Yud apologize to him about everything, which he does. I mean, you're about to die. Yeah. You would do anything at this point. Yeah. Bunting then tells Vlasicus to get a bag from the lounge room with items such as duct tape and gloves. They place a sock into Yud's mouth and tape it in place. More physical violence ensues. At this point, Vlasicus realizes that Yud is going to be murdered and not just beaten up like he thought. Bunting makes them come and watch it happen. A rope was put around Yud's neck and the jack handle was inserted into the rope as a twisting mechanism. Vlasicus knew Yud was going to die and wanted it to happen quickly, so he assisted in the twisting, but the rope broke. Wagner then re-ties it and completes the strangling. Vlasicus says that during this abuse, in true serial killer fashion, Bunting knelt down and recited names of people he had killed to Yud. God. You know what? This moment when Vlasicus steps in to do the strangling, Mm. what a complex character moment. Yeah. It's like awful, but if he really wanted it because he knew Yud was going to die and he wanted to do it as quick as possible, then is that mercy? That's a good question. Big questions. Or is he just saying that he wanted it to happen quickly? To look like a good person. To look like, yeah. Who knows? Who knows? Hayden although he was there, was seemingly quite, like, absent during this murder. He did take part in the original beating, but that's about it. Other than that, he was in the lounge or watching from outside the bathroom. 
Bunting asks Vlasikis and Hayden to go to a shop to purchase surgical gloves and heavy-duty garbage bags. They go to a Woolworths and purchase these things. Upon return, Yud's body had been moved to the bathroom floor. Wagner checks if Yud is still alive by putting his foot on his chest and pushing a number of times. Bunting and Wagner laugh because... Is that, like, accurate? What do you mean? Like, just pushing on his chest? No. No. <laughs> I don't... Check for a pulse or something, dude. Something tells me that these two didn't give a fuck. They were just like, ha-ha. Yeah. Gross. God. Bunting and Wagner put rubbish bags over the body, rope around his legs, and they somehow use a barbell to carry the body? How? I guess they, like, oh, like God. put him over right. it. Do you know and what I mean? pick up the barbell. He, like, was, would have been, like, bent at the hips. Probably. Yeah, that's probably it. And carry the body to the shed. Bunting is laughing, saying Yud is, quote, happy now, and been, quote, made good. Vlasikas leaves to obtain methadone from a pharmacy, being absent for about ten minutes. Quick pharmacy run. Mm. And good, I guess. I've just found out that methadone, meth, methamphetamine, all yeah. different things. Helen thought methadone <laughs> was meth. I was like, from the pharmacy. <laughs> and I had to explain... It's not meth. Well, I was inclined to believe it because, you know, sometimes they like, they have the like, um, yeah, yeah. what do you call it? Like supervised. Yeah. That's kind of what methadone is. Oh. Yeah. Tea. It, that's like for, if you're like addicted to like heroin. Yeah. Okay. And stuff like that. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> he was like, oh shit, they killed my friend who uh, I did heroin with and now I gotta, I gotta get off that. I gotta clean up. Yeah. Yeah. When he returns, they have some banter about what had just happened. And it's banter because Bunting and Wagner think it's generally hilarious. And Hayden has a bit of a laugh too, but Vlasikis is basically in shock but tries to hide it. There was talk about Yud going too quickly and not being tortured enough. Eventually, Bunting is hungry and everyone goes to Macca's. Macca's is such a thing in all crimes. God, well, everyone's going to Macca's. We got called out. <laughs> yeah, someone called us out, so we didn't go to Macca's this time. Yeah. Just to change it up. Just to keep you guys on your toes. Anyway, Vlasikas doesn't eat anything. Yeah. Mood. Mm. Vlasikas and Bunting clean up the bedroom and bathroom after this. Bunting put clothes and other items into a garbage bag, along with Yud's bank card. Which is, you know, probably why they got the pin. Mm -hmm. They chuck this into the car, and Hayden and Wagner leave in this car. Although they cleaned up the premise, Bunting put some of Yud's CDs in the fish tank and messed up the lounge room a bit to make it look like there'd been a fight. When Elizabeth Harvey returns, Bunting tells her there's been a fight between Vlasikas and Yud and he had stepped in and Yud had left. Within a day, Vlasikas and Bunting had purchased another barrel. They put Yud's body in the barrel, but his legs were still sticking out. Oh my god. Bunting tells Vlasikas he would have to do a slice and dice. Bunting cuts off one of his feet and puts it into the barrel. The barrel is then closed and moved to where the other two barrels were in the shed. At this point, Bunting looks into another barrel with the body of Porter and said it was rotting very nicely. His words, not mine. Oh, God. He again asks Vasikis about the smell of the decomposing bodies. Back to his fixation. The other thing to remember is he's not applying any form of conservation or like like acid or anything to these bodies yeah. they're just sitting in these barrels this it's oh god what did he think was gonna happen seemed like he wanted to watch them rot Ooh. or something you know yeah god. that's nasty vlasikis goes on to give a number of false stories to a bunch of people about yud giving them the impression that he was still alive 
Bunting gives him a card that gives him access to Yude's bank account, and they also keep submitting forms to Centrelink, pretending to be Yude, to keep receiving the money. They even practiced the signatures of Yude and Porter, and just, like, left them in a book of documentation that was later found at Bandara Court. <laughs> they were just, they had, it was a book full of signatures. <laughs> like when you're 12 years old, and yeah. your mum's like, okay, yeah. you got to get a signature for your pen licence, Riley. <laughs> and you spend, like, the whole afternoon trying to get the right one. <laughs> There was also other financial documents found with this book of signatures, and their fingerprints were all over them. So, nice try. Yeah. (laughs) Now, these men do not rest, because the next month, they've scoped out their next victim. Living with Hayden, his wife Elizabeth, and her kids, was a woman named Jodie Elliott. Bunting was once again in a relationship with Jodie. This is side chick four. How is he doing this? I don't know. Do they all know about each other? And at what point does he get divorced from Veronica if he ever does? I don't know. God. Jody also has a son named Frederick Brooks. According to our man Vlasikis, Bunting had talked about Brooks being a pedophile and a dirty. Again, there was no talk of killing him before he was killed, like Jude. Vlasikis was once again shocked any of it occurred. I mean... Maybe he's just not reading the group chats or something. He's not vibe-checking enough. Yeah, he needs to vibe-check a lot more. Yeah, because at this point, at this point, you know, we can all tell. Yeah. As soon as... uh, as He just killed your housemate. As soon as Bunting slightly doesn't like someone, it's over for them. He said that Hayden had also complained about Brooks, but seemingly because of Brooks and others' presence as residents at his home. So he was annoyed that people were squatting. Yeah, fair enough. On the 17th of September, 1998, Bunting, Elizabeth and Jody had travelled to Owen looking for a property to be rented by Jody in the name of Susan Allen. Jody is... She knows. She's in on this fraud now. Mm. After the trip to Owen, Jody recalls that there was talk of going to a party and she had given a keycard to an account that she shared with Brooks to him. Vlasikis leaves first and a few minutes later, Brooks leaves on foot and then Bunting and Hayden left together. Not a good sign. Mm-mm. They're coming after him. <sighs> Vlasikis was at home when Bunting arrived later. Bunting asks him for some assistance with some, quote, goodies down the road, presumably stolen property. They walk to Brodekin Avenue, which is when Bunting tells him that he has Brooks. He was going to put handcuffs on Brooks and give the key to Brooks to get the handcuffs off, like some kind of sick game. Ha ha ha, put these on, see ha, if you can get them off. Ha ha. What? What? Who and is then men? he tells Vlasikis to put the handcuffs on himself to make it look good. Like when you when your like kid won't eat, it's like Brussels sprout, and you're like, Yeah, look, it's so good. Mm, I'm so good. Yummy. Yeah, something like that. What? I don't really get it. They're playing some handcuff game anyway. Bunting is like thirty five. Yeah. You know? Ha ha. Casual. God. Have a kid of personality, Bunting. They go into the house and they're doing this, like, handcuff game. Chilling out, taking the handcuffs on and off casually. Yeah. Eventually, when Brooks decides to start playing the game and puts the handcuffs on, it escalates fast and Wagner grabbed Brooks around the neck with his arms and they also put thumb cuffs on him. So he was just playing this fun game and he was like, yeah, yeah, give me a go, give me a go. Boom! Attacked. No vibe checks were going on, but if these three men were like, do you want to play this game with handcuffs? I'd be like, no. Absolutely not. (laughs) No, thank you. Let's go check out the car. Yeah. 
or something. Let's go have a beer outside and stand yeah, around and look yeah, at the sky. Yeah. Bunting and Wagner start torturing Brooks. This involves an electrical impulse machine called a variac, which mm. is the first time they've used this thing. Yeah. They get a PIN number for a telephone from Brooks. What's that? I think like a passcode. <laughs> right, right. Again, they record some abusive phrases directed towards Jody, Mark Hayden, and Elizabeth Hayden. They make him call them by Sir, like Yude as well. And they played the same music that they played when they were killing Yude and the subsequent murder too. They also tape and gag his mouth with a sock in the same way. So they're starting to develop some sort of like MO, mm. kind of. Mm-hmm. They like the sock. Yeah. They, they He always listens to this like one same album. Yeah. We're starting to see a little, some patterns. Mm. Vlasica struggles to remember exactly how Brooks was killed. But after the murder, they wrap the body in bags and place it in the boot of a white Tirana with his clothes and other items also in bags. When they were cleaning up, Bunting and Wagner talk and compare the murder to Davies. Ray Davies. Throw back to him. Throw back to Ray. They say that Brooks responded to pain in a similar way. God. Doing a bit of a compare and contrast. Hayden seemingly wasn't like at this at all and wasn't aware of an intention to kill Brooks, which is funny because he was living at his house. He turns up a week later and they load the white Tirana onto a trailer behind Hayden's Land Cruiser, and Hayden towed it away, accompanied by Bunting. A week later, Vlasicus is at Hayden's shed, where Hayden is fixing up the white Tirana. Bunting is there also, and talking a bit of shit. Asking about Brooks, asking about the smell again. Ra ra ra. Ra ra ra, you could say. Vlasicus sees a body in a pit in Hayden's shed, wrapped up in a similar way to the way Brooks's body had been wrapped. So, so we can kind of infer that it was Probably Brooks. Yeah. Vlasicus then helps Bunting place an answering machine message on the mobile telephone that belonged to Brooks using a tape recording of his voice. Bunting was like, I don't know how to use this. Tech. <laughs> Help. I need my kid. Jody says that it was a foul message, telling her to leave him alone and that he didn't want to talk to her. Basically just saying, fuck off. Yeah. At this point, the barrels containing Gardiner, Lane, Porter and Yude had been moved from the Burdekin Avenue house to the shed at Blackham Crescent, where Hayden lived. Yeah. Because the tenancy at Burdekin was about to end. <laughs> Brooks's body had been taken to Hayden's house too. They go on and do all the same stuff. Misleading people about his murder, getting Centrelink payments, impersonating him on documents, even impersonating him in real life a couple of times at his social worker appointments. Uh, Vlasicus had to pretend to have symptoms of schizophrenia and paranoia for some of these appointments. So they sent it. They went hard. And they obviously believed it. So yeah, give him an Oscar. All right, guys, hang on now because the end of this murder fest is just on the horizon. Mm. Cut to again, one month later, living on a street that intersected Burdekin Avenue, Bunting's house, was a man named Gary O'Dwyer. Gary's story is pretty short, and I'm going to preface now that I say Gary like Gary for some reason, and not Gary. She says it like Gary, Gary from Spongebob. Yeah, like the snail. I can't change, guys. It's just the way I am. So you all have to... <laughs> His name's Gary, not Gary. Yeah, probably. I mean, you don't know that. Did okay, you know Gary? Sure. Yeah, no, but I know that that's <laughs> how you say it. <laughs> Vlasicus is out here spilling the tea again. 
He knew Gary, and Bunting had asked him for financial info and family info on him. Vlasica says that Gary was a financial target. Bunting also said that Gary was a uh, fag and a dirty and needed to, quote, go to the clinic. Yeah, all his words. Yep, all his words. Basically, he had to die. I think, like... The reasonable conclusion to all of these things. Murder. The only reason that we have, like, so far included, like, Bunting's, like, horrible language and, like, very insensitive language Mm. is just to paint the picture that he was a shit guy. Yeah. He was a shit bloke. Yeah. He wasn't out there trying to know what was appropriate. No. He didn't give a flying fuck. No. Again, Hayden is absent from the group chat. (laughs) That's a metaphor. That was not a group chat, if anyone is confused. Yeah. No, there wasn't actually an email chain. I'm talking a metaphorical MSN, group chat. MSN. An MSN chat. Yeah. <laughs> Vlasikas was intending to go to a party on the day of the murder. I mean, you know, he is uh, 18 or something. 18, 19. Yeah. Let the boy party. Woo! However, Bundy insists for him to arrange with Gary for a couple of friends to have a drink with him. Boring. Yeah, boring. Vlasikas, understandably, wants to go to the party. Hopefully with people his own age, probably. Oh, my God. But Bunting insists that he and Wagner go to Gary's house to get him drunk. Aww. Stop, Vlasikas, just go to your party. Go to the party. After about 15 to 20 minutes of hanging out, Wagner grabs Gary by the throat. Casual. Can you imagine? Just like... You're just sitting there and in then... In the lounge and then... Your friend just launches across the room at you. God. Or I wonder if they were, like, talking, like, quite close. Right, he says And it was something. just like, bam! Gary immediately goes into some sort of fit. Maybe a seizure Maybe. Or... Bunting tells Wagner to chill out. This whole thing is, like, (laughs) so ridiculous. Who is Bunting to say? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. This whole thing is, like, so ridiculous it's almost funny. Do you know what I mean? I can't even believe it. Anyway. Bunting's killed, like, seven people and he's like, chill out, dude. Chill out, man. They put handcuffs on Gary and physically torture him after. They use the variac again and extract personal info. Vesicus leaves during this torture and goes to the party. Yes. Good. God, get out of there yes. before going home. The following morning, Vesicus goes to his mother and Bunting's house. Bunting arrives and tells Elizabeth that Gary had gotten into some trouble with some aboriginals. Bunting's words. Don't say that. And he also he also hadn't. Gary hadn't also, yeah. gotten into trouble with anyone. Once again, Bunting's just out here fucking being inappropriate and, and making flaming accusations with horrible terms. Gary had gotten into trouble with Wagner. Yeah. 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 And that Bunting had purchased all of his furniture. She was probably like, what? Then why is... All his furniture. What, what, why do we have another lounge set? I've told you, John. We don't yeah. need another... <laughs> yeah, he keeps accumulating lounge sets. <laughs> Their living room's just a puzzle of different <laughs> lounges. You can't actually sit on any of them because they just tessellate. <laughs> Vesicus helps Bunting load Gary's furniture onto a trailer later that day. Bunting again saying, quote, Gary was good now, like he does every time someone is dead. He didn't tell Vesicus how Gary had died. The furniture is offered and given to different people. When Vlasikis visits Gary's house later, he notices a strong smell that was worse than the barrel smells, if that's even possible. He goes to Bunting's house and asks if Gary's body is still in his house. And Bunting says no, that the body was in a barrel. He says maybe the smells from the meat in the freezer, and that Gary's body was actually stored in a shed at Hayden's premise. So what was the smell? No idea. Don't know. And they do the same financial scams again with Gary. Now... 
It's not long before Bunting starts talking shit about Mark Hayden's wife, Elizabeth. He just looked to his right to see who the nearest person was yeah. to start talking shit about. He was like, God, you know who sucks? Elizabeth. <laughs> Vlasica says that after Hayden had moved to Blackham Crescent, Bunting had started going on with the same story about how Elizabeth needed to, quote, go to the clinic. Seems like this was his way of saying, well, like, she has some issues, so we'll just kill her. Bro, like, does he even want neighbours at this point? Does he even want friends? <laughs> yeah. Everyone's I, like, he's such a people person. Is I, he? Just kills anyone who doesn't like him. I did read, like, Elizabeth had some problems. Yeah. Like, she wasn't, like, her life was not the best yeah. at that point for her. It does align with Bunting's very low standards of what constitutes killing a person. Like she had some, mm. she had some mental issues. She might have just not been the most healthy at that point. Like mm-hmm. just all that stuff. Right. Yeah. So Jody Elliot, remember her? Mm-hmm. She was living in a shed at Blackham Crescent during this time with two of Elizabeth's children. We tried to find out if this was also the shed that they were storing the barrels in. I'm thinking that surely it must have been more of a like granny flat arrangement. Yeah. Why would you because, put your kids in why there? Why would you put your kids in there with your like friend? Yeah. On Saturday the 21st of November 1998, the children were staying with Elizabeth's brother and sister-in-law. In the evening, Mark Hayden and Jody leave the premises. Bunting, Wagner and Elizabeth stay there. This is like assumed to be part of some prearranged plan to get Jody out of the scene so that Bunting and Wagner could kill Elizabeth. Jody says that Elizabeth asked her to take Hayden away from the house for a couple of hours because Hayden's birthday present was due to arrive. Oh my god. Elizabeth asks Bunting for a spot for them to go. He suggests that they go to Renella. So Jody asks Hayden to take her to the Maccas there so that she can have a look at a dog. Don't know whether there was ever going to be a dog. Presumably, but... you know, when she was going to look at it by. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not just like. Just a random dog. To see the Renella Maccas dog. Yeah. But I don't know if there ever was a dog, because they go there and there's no dog. Mm -hmm. So Jodie's like, okay, let's go home. But Hayden's hungry now and wants to eat something. So they pull into a servo to get some food. Sorry, a service station. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Anyway, you all get what I mean. Yeah. He says he'll ring home and let the others know that they're not far away. According to Jodie, when Hayden returns to the car after getting something to eat, he says that all hell had broken loose at home. He was quite disturbed and aggravated on the drive home, but on the way there, he was normal and quiet. Upon their return, Bunting tells Hayden and Jody that Elizabeth had made sexual advances to him and he had turned her down. Right. Of course she had, because he's a womanizer, apparently. <laughs> apparently everyone wants a piece of Bunting. Yeah, apparently. Jody offers to talk to Elizabeth, but Bunting told her to leave her alone. Bunting says he's going to Hungry Jack's to get something to eat and asks if Jody wants to go too, so she leaves with him. I mean, they just got food. Is she not full? She just spent hours at the Ranella Maccas. Yeah. Maybe she the burgers are better at Hungry Jack's. So she was like, I want some of that. HJ's, honey. That's the motto, right? Yeah. <laughs> Kill me. Oh, carry on. So this leaves Hayden and Wagner still at the house. Jody just assumed Elizabeth was sulking in her bedroom. Come on, Jody. Yeah. Vibe check. If that was you, to be busting down your door. Yeah. Raise what's wrong. Yeah. Did you or did you not? Don't tell me you did. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's a bit of hazy detail from Jodie about whether or not she saw Elizabeth at her bedroom window when her and Bunting were leaving for Hungry Jack's. At first, she's like, yeah, yeah, she was there in the window. But then she was like, no, no, I only saw someone's fingers on the curtain. 
It was very dark. It wasn't her. No one was there. Bunting seems to, like, yell something towards the window as they're leaving, like some foul language. When they get back, Hayden says that Elizabeth has left and gone off with her boyfriend. And although we know these are just mad lies, this behaviour isn't strange to Jodie. Elizabeth had, at times before, kept secret boyfriends and disappeared with them. Hayden, like, keeps lying. I don't know if he's, like, we don't know if he was in on it or not, but he keeps, like, making up these lies to Jodie, to Elizabeth's brother and sister-in-law, to Elizabeth's children. A couple of days later, the children, like, were walking to school and they were like, hang on, vibe check. Something's mom and days. Something is wrong. So they go back to her brother and sister-in-law who they were staying with instead of going to school. Yes, kids. Yeah. Yeah. Someone finally is vibe checking. Yeah. Holy crap. These children. Yeah. So Elizabeth's brother is like, what? We just thought she was in her bedroom, but like we were told not to disturb her. They also were told that she had gone somewhere and wasn't going to be home till Monday. So they'd kind of been told different things, but the underlying point was that she wasn't there. It's not until the 25th of November, four days after she's last seen, and all this ruckus has gone on, that her brother-in-law finally reports her as missing. Police investigation commences, but Hayden, master liar, spouts some shit to the police about Elizabeth's disappearance. Even if he wasn't in on it, maybe he's scared and that's why he's lying. But like, dude, your wife. Yeah. Jody says that later on this day, the men were at Four Blackham Crescent and seemed edgy that she was unable to, like, work out. Like, they were frustrated that she wasn't occupied, maybe. Mm. You know they wanted I mean? her to, like, go for a run or something. She was like, no. Yeah, even though it's, like, midnight. Yeah. They told her that they had stuff which had to be moved and instructed her to stay in the family room and keep an eye out in case the police came back. They reversed Hayden's car to the shed and Dirty heard movement into the ceiling of the house and removal of property from there. Items wrapped in old blankets were put into the car. A trailer was obtained. The car was then put on the trailer and Wagner's vehicle was used to tow it away to the Freemans. They're back. They're back. This occurred between midnight and 3am. They assumed this happened because the police had become involved now. They're getting a bit nervous. They had to get those barrels out of Hayden's house. To cut a long story short, if I can even do that, I'm doing my best, guys. Everyone lies to the absolute nines. People get fake voicemails, rude phone call responses. They get led into message banks where a voice claims to be Elizabeth, but it's not. You and us all know these are just tapes. She's telling people to fuck off, calling them sluts. Excuse my language. They also give this fake story to Mrs. Angela Freeman, whose premises were used to store barrels containing the bodies so they'd moved these barrels to the freeman's place mm-hmm. because there are abusive voicemails directed towards hayden intended for hayden to hear them it suggests that hayden wasn't part of the murder although to give credibility to the depiction that elizabeth had voluntarily left and didn't want to be contacted it was probably necessary to get these kinds of phrases I guess Vlasicus said he overheard Hayden telling Bunting that he had told Elizabeth about the murder of Tresize. The first one. <laughs> Throwback. Yeah. So, possible motive? But Bunting hated Elizabeth anyway, and we know he doesn't need much more reason than that. But Hayden seemed to still have some compassion for Elizabeth throughout. He said he'd miss her when she ran away, 
and that he couldn't stomach it when they lifted the lid of the barrel containing her body and started making jokes about her. I don't think many people could stomach that. Yeah, okay, Even if it wasn't your wife. <laughs> Thank you for being compassionate man of the hour. So there's contradicting theories about how much Hayden knew. Whether he knew Elizabeth would be murdered when he left or found out during that phone call he made from the servo. Although, if Hayden didn't know about the murder, Bunting and Wagner would be taking a huge risk murdering her when he was absent. And the fact that he was able to immediately start spouting theories and lies kind of infers that he already was ready to do so and knew about it. But maybe he was able to come up with these when he was driving back in the car. We know he's done it before. There are accounts that he and Bunting got really close after the murder, and Bunting stayed with him for almost all of January 1999, further inferring that Hayden was in on it. It also calls into question if Elizabeth ever had a gift arriving at all for Hayden, or if Bunting put that idea in her head to get Jodie out of the house. The prosecution comes to the conclusion that the evidence proves beyond a reasonable doubt that, yeah, Hayden knew that Bunting and Wagner were intending to kill Elizabeth at the time that he left the premises with Jodie, and the judge accepts that at trial. Killing Elizabeth kind of puts them on the police radar when she's reported as missing, and it's not safe to leave the barrels at the house anymore. Bunting took one barrel containing the body of Porter and put it in the back of a car, which he parked at the back of Lassicus's house in Burdekin Avenue. Back there again? We're back at Burdekin Avenue again. We probably should note that, yeah, they moved the barrels from the Burdekin Avenue house because the lease was about to run out, right? There's actually two Burdekin Avenue houses. Yeah, yeah. One of them was where Vlasicus lived and one of them was where Elizabeth Harvey lived. Yeah. So they were originally at Elizabeth Harvey's house. Then they went to Hayden's. And then they went to Hayden's. And now one's at the other Burdekin Ave house. Because Vlasicus is still there in Burdekin Ave. help. (laughs) He parked the car at the back of this house for around two months. It smelled and the neighbours noticed. But they didn't really say anything, so... Yeah, don't know what story they got told. Vlasicus said that the other barrels were in Hayden's Land Cruiser and on a trailer. So basically after this, the barrels dispersed to the wind. Mm. Vlasicus then moved house, so Bunting had to do something about the barrel in the car. Which is probably for the best, to be honest. <laughs> he needs to do some... He needs to collect his He needs to, like, consolidate. And his barrels. Yeah. Bunting called his friends the Freemans, who had some stuff at their house. They had some barrels, didn't they? They had, I think, like, a car with a barrel in it. Right. In November 1998, and asked if he could store a car at their property. Oh, God help the Freemans. They're just getting shit offloaded yeah. onto them. He said that he needed to move it because he was getting complaints from his neighbour that it smelled, and he needed to store it long enough for the smell to go away so he could sell it. Bunty and Wagner arrived at the property with Hayden's Land Cruiser being towed on a trailer. They unloaded the car, and the Freemans noticed the barrels in the back of the vehicle. When they asked, Wagner said, there were all sorts of crap, quote-unquote, in them. They could smell rotting meat. And Bunting told them that the smell was from rotting kangaroo carcasses. He said that he shot kangaroos, minced them up, and sold them for pet food. The remaining carcasses were in the barrels. The Freeman suggested that they empty the barrels into the creek, which wouldn't be unusual or raise suspicion, because that's pretty normal, apparently, for a sheep station. Yeah, I think, like, a lot of um, farmers... People that are agriculturally inclined, it's quite often for them to like shoot kangaroos on their property. They are kind of pesky, and I think I guess it's fine if they just end up in the creek. Mm, gross. It's I don't know if that's good for the water. I mean, maybe. 
anyway. Bunting said they couldn't because the bullets were still in their skulls and that Hayden had been charged with having unlicensed firearms and that the police were looking for evidence to charge him for using them. Dude, did he, do you reckon he came up with that on the spot? That's kind of good. Yeah, that is. That's pretty thorough. He's under pressure. He's like, bam. Yeah. Perfect lie. You thought. Yeah. Last but not least, we have one more murder. David Johnson, who was the stepbrother of Vlasicus. He wasn't gay, but Bunting still called him a, quote, faggot and said that he needed to die. God. Bunting. Oh, my God. He's just making stuff up. Johnson doesn't even, he doesn't even get a chance. No. According to Vlasicus, Bunting disliked Johnson from the day they met. He called him a putzhead, which I did a little quick Google, and I think that's like Jewish slang for like dickhead. You're a putzhead. <laughs> Vlasicus went to Johnson's house one day to discuss exchanging a computer Johnson had for sale for an ounce of marijuana. I don't know if they, like, made that trade, but that's kind of a shit deal. What's an ounce in grams? An ounce in grams? Yeah. Like 30? Mm, okay. For a whole-ass computer in 1999? Yeah. They were probably expensive back then. Computers. Computers. Just being invented. Maybe marijuana was expensive too back then. Or cheap. Maybe. Question mark. Anyway, it seems like a dodgy deal to me, mate. Riz would not do it. <laughs> no. After this, Vlasicus went back to the house he was sharing with Bunting, and Hayden and Wagner were also there. They started asking him whether he got on with Putzhead and were talking about <laughs> killing him. Vlasicus was put in charge of luring Johnson to Snowtown on the 9th of May. So Snowtown is finally on the scene, or is the scene. And why? How did we get here? So the Freemans had moved to Snowtown. When they moved, Bunting had asked Mrs. Freeman if he could store the car, which had the barrels in it, at their Snowtown property then. And she was like, fine, as long as you clean out the barrels because they stink. Yeah. He's and like, he... what? <laughs> I don't He's know. like, oh, sorry. Um... Yeah, they smell really bad. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, didn't, I don't know what to do. Yeah. So he says he's going to do it, and he says that he did it, but he doesn't because they still smell when she next sees them. The vehicles containing the barrels were parked at the Freeman's new house in Snowtown for a little while. Mr. Freeman then became aware that the bank building was available for rent. He knew that Bunting was looking for a place to rent, and he probably thought, this is the perfect deal. I can get these bloody cars off my hands. They can get off my land, go to the bank. Two weeks later, Bunting does this and they began moving the barrels into the vault at the bank they later told mrs freeman that they were going to pour acid into the drums and try and break the kangaroo carcasses down thank god they finally decided to do something about these bodies but they don't they don't they don't do that i think they do pour acid in yeah they do at this point right but i'll tell you something i'm not sure if it was because they were already like pretty decomposed like they'd been in there for way too long yeah the acid didn't break them down god it just kind of like pickled them oh god that was like the word that the police used ah. so whatever chemical reaction went on not good was not what they were expecting they've literally like mucked around with these barrels so much i found it like so frustrating that they didn't just come up with a permanent solution they I just guess the bank was the permanent solution yeah but it was too little too late they just, like, moved them around and, like, had them in the back of cars and yeah. different houses and... God. Really on-the-fly thinking there. It wasn't thought out at all. 
So, they drove in separate cars as they lured Johnson to Snowtown, their new murder headquarters. At this point, police are intercepting calls between their phones. The police are onto it now. Finally! I don't know what took them so long, but I'll tell you what took them so long. It's because they picked off these people that didn't have a great networks, mm. that had issues. like Were very vulnerable. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They went into the bank premises and Wagner grabbed Johnson around the throat and Bunting applied handcuffs. They made him repeat pin numbers and specific phrases, which were recorded on a computer. Like in like a audio recording on a computer, which that's pretty techy if you ask me. And this was 22 years ago, so That's they were true. onto it. They were on some brick computers. Yeah. I wonder, would it have even had a mic at that point? I don't know. Or would they have to get, like, an attachment? Yeah, not sure. I mean, we were just born at this time, mm. so we wouldn't know. Then Johnson was gagged with one of his own socks and his mouth covered with tape. Wagner and Vlasikas went to try and use his bank card at a nearby town, but it didn't work. When they got back, Johnson was dead. His belt was around his neck, and Bunting was holding his ribs and thumb, the court document put it. We don't know if he was holding, like, one individual rib, or if he had his arm, like, around his torso, like a bear hug style. While also holding his thumb. In the other hand, yeah. Look, very interesting way to put it. Yeah. I'm just going to assume the worst of this guy, to be honest. That's true, that's true. Then they cut up his body and put him in a barrel. Linda Kovaskis was Johnson's girlfriend. Sheila spoke to him on the 9th of May and was told by Johnson that he was obtaining a computer from Bunting that day. On Wednesday the 12th of May, Linda made inquiries as to the whereabouts of Johnson. The next day, she went to his house. Vlasikas answered the door. He told Linda that Johnson had made a 13-year-old girl pregnant and was seeing someone else. So not the thir- he wasn't seeing the 13-year-old girl? Someone else. Yeah, beyond the 13-year-old beyond girl. Beyond the fact that he's made this 13-year-old girl pregnant. You know what? Vlasikas is not as good at lying. <laughs> yeah. This <laughs> was probably a bit of a stretch. Yeah. They had Jody impersonate this girl when Linda called them. They made one successful withdrawal from Johnson's account on the 19th of May. The day after this withdrawal was made, on the 20th of May, 1999, Police opened the disused bank vault at Snowtown after a year-long inquiry into Elizabeth Hayden's disappearance, as well as a couple of the other victims. They'd caught on and finally cracked it. We all know what they came upon. Eight bodies in six plastic barrels, along with knives, handcuffs, clothing and rubber gloves. The smell from inside the vault was apparently so bad, police needed specialist breathing gear. It was just horrible, and apparently had permeated everything. We can't even imagine what it would have been like to open up those barrels and discover that. After identifying Elizabeth Hayden as one of the bodies, they are pretty quick to arrest Hayden and then Bunting and Wagner two days later, and then Vlasikas. Look, Vlasikas spills everything. Most of the information at the trial was information that was given by Vlasikas. Prosecutor Wendy Abraham described them during the trial as, quote, in the business of killing. And, yeah, they were. They didn't have jobs, they just killed people and took their money. True. Their trial lasted almost 12 months, which is the longest trial in the history of South Australia. Their sentences are as follows. Bunting was convicted of committing 11 murders and was sentenced to 11 consecutive terms of life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. 
Wagner was convicted of 10 murders and sentenced to 10 consecutive terms of life imprisonment, no parole. He confessed to only three of these murders. Vlasicus was sentenced to four consecutive life sentences with a non-parole period of 26 years. He pled guilty to four of these murders. And Hayden's lawyer does the most. The previous three offenders were all tried together in the initial trial, and this wouldn't have been good for Hayden because it would have lumped him in with this serial killer ring. And we know that he was he was pretty MIA for a lot of it. Yeah. I'm not saying he wasn't part of it, because he was, but the lawyers managed to argue that he was sufficiently removed from the events to warrant giving him his own trial, and he was successful. In his own trial, Hayden was convicted of five counts, sentenced to 25 years with no possibility of parole for 18 years, and he confessed to three of these murders. So he's actually eligible now for parole. Mm-hmm. I think he's applied once. So did they deny his appeal? Yeah, his application. I'm pretty sure they were like, not yet. Okay. Maybe try again later. God. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure it, this was like one of those classic, you know how whenever some like somewhat prolific criminal is like up for parole and the news is like blatantly outrageous sentencing laws of this convicted killer is going to get out of prison. Oh, like convicted killers should never don't have any opportunity to rehabilitate or anything like that. Guess what I'm trying to say is, he's eligible. Yeah, right. So, if he gets it, so be it. If he doesn't, I mean, it's only going to be, what, from now, another, I guess, like, four years until he just gets out, so... Yeah. Plus, there were people who got in for life with no parole, so Mm. it's not like it doesn't happen. The real bad guys. Yeah. Bunting and Wagner. Hmm. Serving prison 11 times as hard. Yeah, they've got... <laughs> they got to go hard. they got to go really hard. Yeah. But they don't, actually. That's the gag, isn't it? It's just life imprisonment. Yeah. You just got to do 11 times. So if there's an afterlife, they're fucked. But if there isn't, well, True. they've just served one life imprisonment mm. sentence. They get reincarnated, but they're just like <laughs> a prison rat. They're just a rat in the prison. 11 times. <laughs> they can't get out. No, they keep like... They go from a rat to like... A um, cockroach. <laughs> and then to, like... An ant. A dust mite. <laughs> they get stepped on. Yeah. And then to, like, a, a bacteria. Yeah. Plankton. <laughs> and that's how... That's the judicial system for you. Reincarnation. It's real. It just keeps going. I can't believe we made it to the end. I don't think we'd ever get here. This was a long-ass... <sighs> case. Yeah. I think I lost my mind. You think Vlasicus maybe was sentenced a bit harshly? Yeah, look, I think I'm sure that there was reasons that like were not so explicit in the decision that was made, like in the document. But to me, it just seems like he was 15 when he first meets Bunting. Bunting. And then he just, it seems like it's kind of swept up in this, like, we hate... Um, gay people, we hate pedophiles, like, they deserve to die mentality, which he has been, like, sort of, he was so vulnerable when he was so young to have, like, get these ideas kind of, like, put into his head. And then when he grew up, like, he couldn't really get out of it. Like, by the time he was, like, 18 or something, when he is, like, has kind of come around to the 
realization that this is messed up it's probably a little late for him to like stand up for himself because he knows far too much yeah plus we know his childhood was fucked up as well yeah because he had that brother that sexually abused him Mm -hmm. he's got this uh his mom was a bit all over the place. She was, and he had like um, he had a lot of like half siblings, yeah, step siblings, exactly. yeah, people coming in and out of his life, yeah, very unstable. And I just think like, yeah, it def he definitely shouldn't have done it. And I guess that is reflected in his eligibility for parole in twenty six years. But man, I do kind of feel sorry for him, and I hope that when he like comes out, he can have a semi normal life. Hope yeah. he's done some work. On himself in prison. Write him a letter, Riz. Just my two cents. Yeah, maybe I will. <laughs> Hit him up. Yeah. Can you write back from prison? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, they can email and shit. Really? Yeah. Well. Some of them. And we know he knows how to use a computer. Blasicus. Yeah. We'll send you a little audio recording. Ah. Anyway. God. I don't even have much more to say about yeah. this case. We've said it all. Yeah. Just, I guess, that we hope you enjoyed listening to this semi-abridged Snowtown episode. Yeah. It was crazy. And Mm. that's about it. Next week, we're going to lighten it up. Next week's going to be a little more, a little chilled out, so... It is going to be lighter. It's going to be funny. Although, I think there were some moments in this. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. We've got to go. We'll catch you next week. Yeah. Bye. See ya.